Ed Cohen, your host on Global Radio Talk Show, a service of globalbusinessnews.net. Coming to you today from uh, Rockefeller Center in New York and in Los Angeles. Our very special guest is Mr. Angelo Paparelli, a partner in the 900 attorney international law firm of Seifarth Shore, LLP. Angelo Paparelli practices immigration law in LA and New York. He focuses on business and employment-based immigration the immigration consequences of mergers and acquisitions, global mobility, the E2 and EB5 immigrant investment visa categories. Angelo was admitted to practice law in Michigan, California, New York. Angelo founded and served as president of the Alliance of Business Immigration Lawyers, ABIL, a worldwide alliance of leading immigration lawyers. Angelo has also been rated three times, three times as the world's leading immigration lawyer by the international who's who of corporate lawyers and a star by the chambers and partners in several annual rankings. He's also a recipient of the American Immigration Lawyers Association's prestigious award, Edith Lowenstein Award. Angelo blogs and is very, very active on the internet and speaks at conferences. He's also an expert witness in immigration law, and a prolific writer. Let's say hello to Mr. Angelo Paparelli. Hello, Ed. It's nice to speak with you and to have this engagement to hopefully enlighten your audience. I hope so, too. Our audience is worldwide. It is primarily, not totally, but primarily HR and global mobility people involved with cross-border employment issues. So it's extremely timing, notwithstanding the political implications of what's going on out there in the world today, but just because of generating more understanding on a complicated issue. What are the most pressing issues concerning global mobility, concerning multinational companies today moving employees across international borders, even on a temporary basis? Well, let's start internally within the organization, then we can move out. Internally, the persons who are involved with global mobility face a serious challenge in attempting to educate their management and their key personnel on immigration requirements. There's a, an assumption that one can snap one's fingers and in a week you can have the person sitting in front of your desk. That's not quite true. That's in fact uh, quite untrue. The challenge is uh, one that is growing because we have uh, found, for example, in the recent travel ban episodes in the courts and in the White House that many uh, global mobility managers have been pressed to provide data on the nationality, place of birth, travel history, and present physical location of key personnel because these people are moving across international borders in real time and restrictions on entry or the issuance of visas proved to be a surprise development initially. And what they found was that no one repository of data had all of the relevant information. Much of it was in the immigration law firm's possession. 
Other parts of it were in the possession of either the, the tax advisors or the travel agencies, and sometimes with payroll. And altogether, they found that besides not having any single integrated repository, they, they also found they weren't correct collecting the, the right information. So access to data and timely ability to produce accurate reporting to management has been a real challenge. The last one I would mention is the befuddling nature of trying to understand uh, local country immigration requirements, and they vary across the map or across the world, actually. So that's internally. And externally, I would say that I think we'll get into this, but there's a big movement among nation states to change their immigration laws. It used to be said that immigration law in the United States was the most complicated, followed perhaps in a tie by the UK and Canada. Actually, what we have found is that many countries have looked at our laws and picked and choose among various types of programs. Some, as in Canada and Australia, have point systems. Others have employer-sponsored systems, and, and so it can be quite a headache. So let me uh, drill down a bit with you here on this issue concerning taking jobs away from Americans. Is that really a factor? Well, we have to try and separate the social media memes and the headlines by uh, reporters who may not really understand the subject of immigration from reports of economists and from departments of labor. And my sense is that we have a complicated economy with evolving types of jobs. We have high-skilled job needs, and we have rather mundane needs uh, in agriculture, retail, hospitality. And, and so we have to look at it not in a broad macro sense across a particular country, but rather in a location by location, because each of those locations constitutes a la labor market within whose commuting distance workers can apply for jobs. And often what we have found is a mismatch of education and experience with job requirements. There are woeful inadequacies in our educational system in trying to figure out what sorts of skills and at what levels domestic workers need to be given additional training. And we've also found that some persons who have training have not kept up with developments. And if we don't know one thing from our, our global digital world, and that is everything is disruptive and it's rapidly changing. As a result, this can appear on superficial glance to seem like jobs are being taken away from Americans or from whatever the domestic labor market might be. But let's look at the consulting industry very quickly. Consultants can engage in a variety of tasks, and I'm talking about business and IT consultants here. Some can do what is called staff augmentation, and that is just adding more people to perform the same kind of work as domestic workers. But others are solution providers, where they look at legacy information technology systems, and they say, 
you are operating in the dark ages, employer, and you need to upgrade the service level you provide to your global customers because they expect it. They've come to learn that things should be easy in terms of interaction with your website or your private areas where account information is is offered. And you simply need to update. Well, when the employer surveys the skill sets required, they find that oftentimes the domestic workers are, are excellent in the legacy systems, but have not any awareness of what's happening in the latest iteration of technology that is up to the minute. And so that's where these confusions, I think, seem to arise. And it fundamentally comes down to a question, are consumers willing to pay more for products and services if those products and services are provided by domestic workers? I think the effect of higher prices versus uh, patriotism toward domestic workers would lean toward a desire on the part of consumers to go with the best quality at the lowest price. That's always been the history. So this cuts across industries. It could be movie studios. It could be art. It could be IT. It could be any other kind of manufacturing, automobiles, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The movement in regard to automobiles has been going on for years and years, as with IT. And and movies have been made all over the world as governments try to lure the jobs and injection of economic inputs into their local economies. And so that's happening in a state versus state environment and a country versus country environment. This relates to not just long-term assignments, but also taking the Amex card and going to visit customers in Bolivia or Rio or Paris or Italy or wherever, right? Right. Uh, well, what this is often described is the when you say take the Amex card, I think you mean making an impromptu visit to try to develop a market. Um, right. And uh, and going in as a business visitor. Every country of the world has a business visitor visa category or a, a visa waiver category for business. Uh, but the real challenge is to discern whether uh, this is the provision of global services, the exchange of goods and services, or is it labor for hire masquerading as global business services? Uh, increasingly, this phenomenon is called stealth visitors. Uh, in other words, the HR department doesn't know that there is travel planned across international borders. Uh, perhaps the technical manager may know, but oftentimes it's do done on a whim with very little notice because an opportunity is hot. And when you arrive at the location and you boot up your, your notebook um, and you start demonstrating what your product or service is all about, um, you know, perhaps the customer says, well, what if you tweak this a little bit? That would be great for us. And then the the uh, business visitor, so-called, starts tweaking. And when does that become the manipulation of code and programming, which is labor for hire? So these are some of the complications that are that are present all the time in, in virtually every civilized country of the world. What factors should uh, global HR, corporate global HR, consider in choosing a law firm with immigration law expertise? 
Well, there are many, many factors, and, and they've changed over time. Actually, the demands uh, on providers of immigration legal services have, have increased dramatically, and there's still been price pressure in, in most instances. The, uh, the first thing, obviously, is the technical ability to deliver legal services in an efficient and transparent way so that what ought to be uh, easily achieved is in fact easily achieved. Um, but increasingly, that has required um, a, a set of architectural innovations in terms of platform tools and technology uh, that can be adjusted to different uh, regimes of, of uh, immigration law in several different countries. This has moved on to data reporting and data analytics services. Many, many companies these days have quarterly meetings with their immigration counsel to actually go over service level agreements and determine if targets for the delivery of the services are met, if successful outcomes are being achieved, or if not, why not? They will survey the population of technical managers and foreign nationals who are the beneficiaries of these services to find out their level of satisfaction, and they'll realize that they need some form of customized reporting that is or is not perhaps accessible through the uh, intranet page that most immigration law firms will maintain. Now, I say law firms, what I really mean are boutiques that focus only on immigration and the full service firms with integrated, robust immigration practices within them. Following up on the integrated law firms, your firm very active in employment are, and all of this relates to employment, doesn't it? You're right, but we're also active in tax and in times uh, and in real estate and in global business transactions. So that's the advantage of being in an integrated firm. Frankly, that's why uh, having had experiences in both full service firms and my own law firm that was immigration only for 10 years, I felt that I, I was not well serving my client if I had to have them put their employment lawyer on the call. And oftentimes an employer employment lawyer who knew very little about immigration and uh, had to be educated before we get to providing advice and counsel. In an integrated firm, I've got people in a variety of practice areas whom I know have the understanding of immigration, so we can begin the conversation immediately. The, the other thing I might mention is scalability. What happens when there's a huge merger uh, and an integration of a large uh, group of employees uh, that may or may not be considered new hires or may be considered grandfathered in with grandfathered benefits? How is that handled when it's, a, it's, it's not a daily occurrence, but it ha you have to be prepared for it, that a real concern is how flexible and nimble are the law firms. It's not so important to have people on the ground in any, every country of the world because the reality is that there are immigration 
law experts in each and every country. And, and that's, for example, one of the reasons I formed the Alliance of Business Immigration Lawyers, because we have invited numerous lawyers who know, for example, the law of Germany, the law of Australia, of Canada, of the UK, um, and uh, Asian countries generally, and we're gaining, gaining traction in South America and in Africa. So what we really find are that there has to be a collaboration effort, and usually the primary law firm is, is the project manager or quarterback over several different movements of people across countries, not necessarily starting or ending with the United States. If we could just jump aside for a second, in the immigration chapter of the International Practitioner's Deskbook series, where you authored the chapter on global mobility management, a primer for chief legal officers and HR execs. That was done some time ago, but now it's really become, at this stage, on October of 2017, it's really become front and center with the politics involved, hasn't it? You are correct. In, in some respects, the more things change, the more they stay the same. There has to be a, a development of a business model within the, the large multinational organizations. And we have seen historically two of those. One is a regional management, decentralized approach, and the other is a centralized management approach, usually within the headquarters, country, and location. And the reason why a decentralized approach doesn't really work well is that there is no consolidation of a uniform set of, of data metrics so that what's reported on in one country can appear on the same dashboard as is reported on another. And so that's one movement. But with regard to the decisions that are affected by late developments in politics, which are coming at such a frenetic pace, what I would say is that aside from all those other things I mentioned about the qualities of a law firm that practices in the area of immigration law, it is the ability to give strategic advice and counsel and to be a business partner in that respect, because the job, the work of the company will get done. It may have to change in terms of the opening up of research and development uh, operations, for example, in a country that is more friendly uh, to the needs of global business than, say, the U.S. or the U.K. Or look at Brexit. Uh, we find that there is yet to be determined exactly how the immigration law of the UK is going to be integrated with the free movement of people, which is the touchstone of the European Union. And so these are changes. We can look at the travel ban. We can look at the increasing integration of, of data within certain national intelligence agencies. I just read that the US and Italy have agreed to share intelligence data in new ways, including social media data. And, and so with the world concerned about limiting the spread of terrorism and harm to national security, with the threats of cybersecurity so prevalent, these are new developments that have not yet been resolved, and these are our current challenges. We deal with a somewhat unpredictable and vacillating approach to immigration in the United States these days, and part of that approach is not even written in the law books or in the regulations. It is, I would call, sometimes a dog whistle, a message that is issued by a leader 
in public that gives a signal to the determiners, the adjudicators of an application for visa or immigration benefits to say, go hard on this category of people. Give them extreme vetting, but with respect to people coming from the same region, if there are allies, go easy on them. And so that's the part that's perhaps the most befuddling and perplexing is you really need to have strategic advice with ears to the ground as what are the local trends. And ironically, social media is doing that as well. There are numerous private groups on social media where lawyers are communicating what they see on the ground in terms of visa category, attitude of a consular officer or an immigration office, and uh, suggested solutions and workarounds. It's an exciting time. I can tell you I've never been more passionate about this field, which ultimately is a helping profession. We help people achieve their business and personal goals. And that's very gratifying when it can happen despite innumerable obstacles. Now, with so many other changes happening, particularly coming from Europe with the data privacy actions and the sharing of previously confidential information, that's going to impact U.S.-based companies, isn't it? Absolutely. And that is a domain unto itself, an area of legal specialization that has to be integrated. And here's another example why a full service firm is perhaps better equipped to deal with that because they have to deal with it across the board and across multiple industries. And an individual law firm may not have the resources, the infrastructure, the capital required to establish that sort of movement. And so I would say to you that uh, this is a factor in deciding what are uh, are the optimal structures and arrangements you need in third-party vendors of all types. The same goes for tax, the same goes for relocation services, and certainly the related technological support vendors that are involved in this space. So to sum up, how have recent policy changes among nation states on the one hand to protect domestic labor and on the other hand to lure highly skilled workers? What's going on? There's a pendulum swing and it keeps moving and it's not something that that can be pinpointed as true in all countries. In the United States, I think we are seeing a greater and greater antipathy toward the entry of foreign workers, unless, as in the executive order of President Trump, which is called Buy American, Hire American, there is a movement toward bringing in only the highest skilled workers and the most highly paid workers to grow job opportunities and to make it less likely that there will be competition with American workers. On the other hand, Canada seems to be the beneficiary of a number of of the reactions to that set of impediments created by the United States. I'm hearing a number of companies setting up research and development arms in Canada. And I, I think that We are also viewing uh, changes in the Canadian system where they've had for a long time a residency program point system, but they recently um, set up a a fast-paced, comparatively faster-paced temporary worker 
system of points and valuations where um, that can be actually developed in um, uh, there are various providers one is Neota uh, logic but you can ask a series of questions online and essentially know that there is a strong likelihood no likelihood or or a reasonable likelihood of getting the visa because they ask you about education age skill set um, the um, uh, the experience that someone has had, and they do it in a very granular way, so they get those who they perceive to be the best and the brightest. On the other hand, uh, we had hoped the United States would move toward a much more self-sponsored entrepreneurial approach, not that you fit a number of, uh, of boxes some, that some central planner or legislator would check off as the most desirable, but that you believe, along with venture capital partners and angel investors, that you've got an idea a disruptive idea that will extract value in ways never done before and transform industries with the outcome that the lives of, of uh, uh, people are, are improved. And, and so that's um, something that we had thought was coming. I wasn't really happy with the international entrepreneur rule that the Obama administration came up with, but now even that has put, been put on suspended animation under the Trump administration, and we really don't have a good system of encouraging investors uh, and entrepreneurs to come together with new ideas. Uh, in fact, there are obstacles uh, strewn in the path of, uh, of those kinds of efforts, multiple obstacles in numerous countries. So how do you rate the EB-5 investment visa program with what you've just said? Well, I would probably give it a C minus. We've had Congress renewing what is called the Regional Center Program in short spurts of time. The last renewal was for two months. A deadline is coming up on December 8th. If we're lucky, we'll get a renewal till September 30th. And these large infrastructure, real property development type of investments, which do in fact obviously create jobs because of the amount of money flowing in, are unable to know what is the law, what will be the law, how much will be the investment amount. Beyond that, there are tremendous backlogs in the decision on whether an investment is qualifying. There are issues of tracing the source of funds and that have not been resolved. Some of the visa quota backlogs have developed into a phenomenon where we're actually talking about whether a a you know 12-year-old child can be the investor because that's the only way that there will be a visa assured because if they are tagged on as a dependent of the parent's investment, they will never reach the, the beginning of the quota line and they will, is what is called, age out. So there are numerous problems with the EB-5 program. On the other hand, there are a number of countries that offer citizenship by investment that are much quicker. You know, Canada's experience has been an on-again, off-again kind of approach at a provincial level and a national level, but um, this money is going places because there are turbulent uh, developments in multiple countries and people want to have a plan B. They don't want to risk being subject to the whims of some potentate who throws them in jail because he or she doesn't like the, uh, the, the speeches they give or the writings or just 
they're interfering with <laughs> private investments of the potentate. So I would just say that that we need the world needs good programs like this, uh, but. Now, they're they're also not regulated. I mean, we've had some stories of organized crime individuals uh, getting visas from Caribbean nations. Um, and uh, how does America protect itself from from those folks? Uh, the challenges are very, very daunting. But certainly the EB-5 program, in my judgment, has not met its really attainable goal of uh, encouraging the investment of funds to create jobs in the United States at a level that it could, because the bureaucrats and the legislators have have just not gotten with the program. Some of it, they think, is buying citizenship, and they believe that's unpatriotic to sell such a sacred right. And I'll leave it to the audience to decide which way they fall on that question, but this is a phenomenon that is worldwide now, and we need to know where is our role in this? Where is our piece of the action? Well, thank you very much for that insight. What do you like to do away from work? Well, I enjoy my family. I have two adult daughters who are approaching the prospect of marriage, and I have a lovely wife. My wife is a meditation trainer, and I take part in daily meditation, a form of meditation known as heartfulness. I also believe in fitness, and over the years, I've been involved in taekwondo. I got a black belt in my 50s. Then I blew out my elbows. Then I thought they were healed, so I tried boxing, and <laughs> I blew out my elbows again. So uh, now it's mostly uh, uh, weight training and yoga, primarily yoga. And I really enjoy that because without that nimbleness of body and mind, it's hard to do the work I do. Well, thank you very much again, Angelo A. Paparelli, a partner in the international law firm Seifarth Shore, LLP. Angelo practices immigration law in L.A. and New York. Thank you once again, Angelo, for being my guest on Global Radio Talk Show. I also have a blog, www.nationofimmigrators.com, and I'm very active on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can find me under my name. Nationofimmigrators.com. I really enjoyed it. Oh, I enjoyed it, too. You just have talked so deeply about this information, which uh, on the surface appears to be very complicated and intricate. And you've, you've made sense of so many things for me. Thank you again. My pleasure. Okay, from New York and Rockefeller Center, Global Radio Talk Show, signing off. I think to myself, what a wonderful.